This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Her name is Patty McCord, and she was the chief talent officer in charge of things like HR and culture at Netflix. And she is also the author of a new book, Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. If you were at all interested in what it was like to be in Silicon Valley in the 80s and 90s, how Netflix came together and why we are now in the fifth era of Netflix from DVD to streaming to go down the list to original content to whatever the next things they're working on. Uh, If you're curious as to how companies recruit and the importance of corporate culture, uh, you will find this conversation fascinating. I found her to be delightful. She is extremely knowledgeable about all sorts of things taking place both in the world of corporate um, HR and within technology and startups. Uh, Rather than me just babble incessantly, let's jump right into it. My conversation with Netflix, Patty McCord. My extra special guest today is Patty McCord. She was the chief talent officer at Netflix for 14 years Her presentation on the subject of corporate culture has been shared almost 15 million times. No less a star than Sheryl Sandberg called it the single most important document to ever come out of Silicon Valley. She is the author of a new book, Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. Patty McCord, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me. So I'm excited about this because, A, I'm a big Netflix fan, and B, you wrote a really interesting book about the concept of corporate culture and, and how to implement it. Let's let's talk a little bit about your background and how you ended up at Netflix. Uh, in the late 80s, for four years, you ran the corporate diversity program at Sun Microsystems. How did you end up at Sun, a, a girl from Dallas? How does that happen? Mm, let's see. I started out in tech as a recruiter. So I started out in a company called Seagate and I recruited oh, sure. hard yeah, drives and hard drives. Else. Yeah. So I recruited assemblers and then technicians and then engineers and then vice presidents. And then I ran staffing for them. And um, and I did it because uh, <laughs> my husband then was a artist and I was working with him and it was too boring for me I needed to be someplace social so Uh I I said I just need a Mr. Coffee (laughs) I just need to be with other people in a Mr. Coffee so that's how I I uh, did the recruiting job and so I got pretty hooked on the technology I really liked the people and the things we were doing I um so from Seagate to Sun how does that happen um because I interviewed somebody for a position at uh at Seagate and no, this was later. Yeah, it was at Seagate. And she was from Sun and I called to make her a job offer and she said, Oh, I didn't like you or your company or really? your team. But I, I no, I didn't like your company or your team, but I really liked you. So why don't you quit and come work for me here at Sun? Get out of yeah, here. Yeah, it's crazy. So she bugged me for about two years. Wow, that's and great. Then, and how's, it, how, who'd you work with at Sun? Was this the Scott McNeely era or? Yeah, it was the McNeely era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, McNeely who told me one time when I was presenting on diversity to the executive staff. So the executive staff 
at that time was Carol Bartz, Ed Zander, wow. Scott McNeely, you know, um, Eric Schmidt. That's Seriously. a murderer's row right yeah. there. Yeah, and Scott told me one time, no, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth, Patty. Mine was platinum. <laughs> <laughs> That's was, pretty funny. It was a different era. To, a, say, to say the least. So how do you go from Sun to Netflix? Um... Let's see. I went to Europe for Sun. I uh, Where we, in Europe? I was in Scotland. We had a, a plant there in Scotland, and I went because our theme du jour uh, in HR at that time was going global. Right. And I came back, and I was like, hey, I'm global, And but we had switched themes, and now we were, quote, re-engineering. And I said, I remember saying, oh, you mean we're going to have layoffs? No, we're re-engineering the workforce. I, you know, right. Barry, I think... That may have been the seed of my hatred for HR speak. So, so right sizing was the phrase I remember yeah. that was so deplorable. Reengineering is such a neutral sentence, isn't that such nice? Neutral, you know, yeah. and it's so geeky. It's we're reengineering. Like, yeah, we're reengineering. Oh. Yes. Are we giving people new job descriptions? No, we're firing them. That's but right. we're going to call. We're going to call it reengineering because we didn't great. do that. So um, then I took a job at Borland, mm-hmm. which was. Uh, um, a software company that was a rival to Microsoft Office at the time. Right. And Did they ultimately end up buying WordPerfect? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. But they had some competitive. Yes, it was. And then um, Microsoft competed by basically undercutting the product and price and wiped it all out. Right. But it was. Changed a, APIs. They yeah, always did a lot of fun but here's stuff. Here's a fascinating thing. I, you know, I'm in HR. I'm not particularly, I wasn't particularly technical at the time. I went to Borland. I had a 286 standalone computer. Uh-huh. And I came from Sun where I had a spark station. Sure. Right. I could, I could publish newspapers on my desk and so I asked somebody to bring me something I'm like don't we have this in soft copy can I get it off of the quote net and they said I'll bring it to you and the person came to me and handed me a floppy drive sneaker net <laughs> yeah a floppy drive and I'm like hey thanks and then I held it in my hand like what, do I what do am I this? supposed to do with this I didn't know anything <laughs> but it was um it was desktop applications I could use the product myself uh-huh. um it was really cool I worked a lot with the spreadsheet group with Quattro Pro and it was but still that- HR. So from HR and recruiting, how do you make the transition to I'm all about culture, I'm all about talent? How, how does that take place? Well, I think that when you recruit, you are all about talent anyway. It's not just money, perks, stock options. No, no, it's matchmaking. Right. It's about knowing what problem a team is trying to solve, who are the right people to do it, getting under their skin to understand Mm -hmm. what drives people like that, particularly technical people. You know, they're wired really differently and they Uh like different kinds of problems. I was really curious about that. And then when I started recruiting like executives, then that was another insight into what's leadership really like? What are people really about? So I, I was at Borland and um one of my VPs that I work with had taken a job at a small startup, and he took it because he really liked the CEO there. And so I called him up one day and said, hey, how's it going? How's your HR person? He said, oh, the HR person's terrible. We're, we're <laughs> getting rid of them. I'm like, How do you great. recruit an HR I person? Said, I said, uh, great, why don't you hire me? And he said to me, you told me if I recruited out of Borland, you'd break both my legs. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> Well, on the exception, yeah, clearly. Like, I didn't mean me. And he said, lots of luck. I'm not going to do it. The CEO's name is Reed Hastings. 
Uh-huh. So I hung up the phone. Remember back in the day you could dial star six nine? Sure. And it would call back. Yeah. So I called back and Reed's sister, who was the receptionist, answered the phone. And I said, may I speak with Mr. Hastings? And she put me through. Just like that. Just like that. So I said, you don't know me, but I'm going to be your next HR person. And um, that's how I met Reed. And I went in for an interview. And during the interview, he asked me about my HR philosophy. Now, remember, I'd been at Sun. Uh-huh. So I could speak fluent HR. Reed, I believe that it's imperative that each individual in the organization are empowered to be engaged in, you know, <laughs> the relationship between the corporate objectives and their... And he said to me, what are you saying? Do you people even speak English? How is this supposed to help me sell software? And so I got in an argument with him. Really? I said, at the job interview? Yeah, at the job interview. I'm like, well, you don't know me. And he's like, well, you're not telling me anything. So we have this big tiff. And I go home and my husband then said, uh, how'd it go? And I said, well, <laughs> he said, you got to grow up and be a good girl. You are the breadwinner of this family. You know, We have three children. You got to start acting like a normal person. So um, he hired me. Wait. Nothing intervening, having a tiff over corporate speech. Oh, we came. Ba- I came back for a couple of interviews. Okay, and I was going to. You re- walk that back a little. I bit. I walked that back, and I said I was sorry, and then I was going to report to the CFO. And I joined six months before the IPO. Oh, really? I joined at the cusp of our international expansion. This was a job where I got to be in charge of HR, and it was a tiny little startup, and there was literally nothing. How many How many people were there when they were about to go IPO? A hundred? A couple of hundred, okay. maybe. Um, maybe more than that, and because when you we left? opened our European office. We grew that company through merger and acquisition. Every time we acquired a company, we doubled. So when I left, really? we were... A couple of thousand. We'd acquired four companies in five years. That was pure software. Pure Atria was acquired by Rational, was acquired by IBM. But it's an important part of my story because um, Reed was a first-time CEO. It was my first time actually running a whole HR department. And so I was very aware of policies and procedures, and I would take, if we acquired your company, I'd take your handbook and our handbook, and I'd smush them together, and I'd try and have overall comprehensive policies that would piss off the fewest people that I could piss off, right? Anyway, so then uh, the company, we got acquired, and they did what any what we did whenever we acquired a company. They wiped out all the upper management. Wait, who acquired you guys? Pure Atria was acquired by a company named Rational. Uh-huh. Okay, so Rational acquired us, Reed and I, and the rest of the executives were gone. Um, and I started consulting then, and Reed started investing in other startups at the time. And Netflix was one of them. Oh, so this is... When you started with Reed, what it wasn't Netflix. What no. was the company? It was called Pure Atria or Pure now Software I when I was first there. So when he went off and invested in Netflix, how did he end up as CEO and how did he bring you along? He was co-founder and okay. um, he was chairman of the board for a year or so, um, maybe more. And then he decided to go in and run the company with the co-founder, Mark Randolph, at the time. And the company was expanding, and so he called me up to join them, and I said no, <laughs> because I thought it was a really stupid idea. DVDs through the mail. Yeah. Hold I mean, that thought, because I want I share your thoughts, and we'll talk about that. Let's talk a little about culture. It's become such a huge issue in our society, uh, and there is a, somewhat of a well-documented culture problem 
coming out of of Silicon Valley. Uh, Uber is probably, um, you know, the poster child. But we're seeing things at, at venture capital firms, at Google, at elsewhere, where there's a little bit of a bro mentality and not necessarily the healthiest uh, culture. How difficult is it to build a culture for a big company? And if you have to step into a mess like Uber, how hard is it to turn that super tanker around? Let's start with what I define culture as. I'm very Margaret Mead about it. Okay. <laughs> it's uh, the way you behave. It's the stories that you tell. It's uh, what you do when no one's looking. It's what employees see uh, management do and say. It has almost nothing to do with what you write down. Mm -hmm. So the famous Netflix culture deck I didn't write. It was a collaborative uh a thing that we did to onboard people, and it took us about 10 years to create. Wow. So culture isn't something you declare and then it's so. It's, right? an, it's an ongoing Yeah, evolution. so if you're in a large corporation and you're setting out to empower people, but everyone has to ask five people for permission to do anything, then talking about empowerment, it's absolutely ridiculous. Right. Secondly, um, I know everybody wants to point to the Silicon Valley as the, you know, the the birthplace of Brotopia. And I, and actually, Emily Chang, who's a Bloomberg reporter, sure. who wrote the book, I think it's a fabulous book, and I learned a ton, and I lived it. <laughs> so her research was really good about it. But the issues that are happening in the corporate world right now are happening all over the place. So I just got a interview a couple of weeks ago by a reporter in uh, The Guardian in the UK, and she said, Oh, you know, the people in Silicon Valley must be just freaking out because of their employees going rogue and going to the Internet and complaining about sexual harassment. What are you going to do about this horrible thing that's happening out there? And I said, well, first of all, going rogue. You mean like using social media like we all do? We don't really right. think about that as uh, like Facebook. a rogue thing anymore. Right. Uh, he right? tweeted, he's gone <laughs> yeah. rogue. I said, you know, it is a problem that people in companies feel like nobody inside the company is listening to, to them. And so in order to get an audience, they have to go to a bunch of strangers on the Internet. That's a serious cultural problem. But going rogue isn't. And second of all, I said to her, because you've never experienced any sort of harassment as a female reporter in the UK. Right. Right. And she's, you know, it's crickets on the other end of the line. I'm like, this is a problem. The, it's a real problem. There's actually a phrase called reporting while female that raises all sorts yeah. of so this, harassment Yeah, so this issues. covers every single woman, if you want to do the Me Too movement, in mm -hmm. every single business around the world from from maids to mavens, right? So it's not an issue of the Silicon Valley. The Silicon Valley, however has a particular problem that's a result of so many men in tech. Mm -hmm. So because of the overwhelming, you know, we talked earlier about how I ran, um, how I ran diversity at Sun in the 90s. Uh -huh. So I, I actually started running affirmative action, which morphed into diversity. So I knew the numbers. And when I read Lean In 10 years later mm -hmm. and I looked at the numbers because I knew what they were, right, the, the, because I did affirmative action reporting for the number of female, the numbers were worse. Oh, my goodness. So the number of women in technology had declined. And it, it just and I looked back and I realized, you know, back in the day in the 90s, we celebrated our diversity up one side and down the other. I mean, my Cinco de Mayo party had the Rico Chacon. You know, I had the mariachi band. It was amazing. And I didn't fix pay. Huh. Right? We could have fixed equal pay back then, and we didn't. 
right? And so... What would the pushback have been if you had said at that time, by the way, we should pay male and female engineers the exact same amount, and this will allow us to recruit the best people across the entire industry? Because that's not how we recruited. Because the actual... Um, the actual fact of recruiting went like this. Tell me how much you make. We'll give you 20% more. We'll give you... 30% more. 11% more. Okay. Right. We'll give you whatever it takes to hire you. And so those were the negotiations, and that was what was perceived to be the negotiation. I was just reading... Um, my friend Jenna Rich just wrote an article yesterday about she's a headhunter in Silicon Valley. has been around for a really long time. And she said, you know, if you ask what the salary range is for a particular position and it's between 150 and 200, women will think 170 is a good offer and mm -hmm. men will always argue for 200. Mm -hmm. Right. So some of it is cultural. Some of it is bias. Some of it is the types of positions that we're in. And so now I, I just did an HR conference yesterday and uh -huh. I stood up in front of them and I said all right let's let's be clear which are the three most female dominated departments in any company sales and marketing HR and finance huh. and I stand with my legs apart and my hands at my side and fists and I get all shrill and I'm like fix pay we own it huh. we, we own compensation so like we are women <laughs> We own our own compensation, so let's fix the systems that keep it down. So, so in other words, the women in the accounting department, HR, these are the people who help determine what the internal pay structure of a company is going to be. Yes, which is a lot of what my company is about. My, my company, I'm sorry, which is a lot of what my book is about. What my book is about is reexamining all the institutions inside of a company and saying, if we had to start over again, would we do it the same way? Right. So that's the reason I wrote the book Powerful is that I believe that we're actually harming ourselves by using the same methodologies for managing people and managing compensation and managing recruiting that we've been using since the 60s. I mean, really, it goes back a long, long way. So when you have a merit increase budget that once a year at the end of your annual performance review, we give you a 6.5% merit increase budget on a bell curve distribution with ratings and rankings and salary ranges and blah, 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 And you start out underpaid, you'll never catch up. Right, you'll never catch up. We were just discussing the challenges in setting up a corporate culture or helping to turn uh, one around at a Brotopia-type shop like Uber, but let's talk a little bit about um, about the corporate culture. And, and there's a quote from the book that I really like. A great workplace is not espresso or lush benefits or sushi lunches, grand parties or ni nice offices. What is a great workplace and how does culture play into that? Well, a question I often ask people when they ask me that, so I'll ask you that. If you think about the time you went home from work and you spontaneously told your spouse or your pet, <laughs> oh my God, it was a great day at work today. It's almost never that there were macadamia nuts in the cookies or that mojito was just right. Macadamia nuts are really They are really good, and right? you might say that, but when it's really about work and it really comes from your soul, right? it's usually because you did something hard. Uh -huh. With other really smart people that you didn't think you could do. I mean, I and it worked out well, and yeah, it was well and I received. I spend a and... fair amount of time with Silicon Valley 
happy people, people. What what are you in charge of? I'm in charge of making employees happy. And I tell them. Happiness officer. Well, I'm like, that's not a job. Okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's a thing to do, but right. it's not a job because, you know, I used to tell my team when I worked at Netflix and I thought of myself as the COO of the culture. Uh-huh. Right. I would say. Uh, to my HR team, yes, we are a service organization. It's not spelled S-E-R-V-A-N-T-S. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the people we serve don't work here. We serve the people that use our product. Right. And so our job is to make sure that we get out of the way or and make sure that our teams are comprised of brilliant people who can do the hard work of creating an amazing service that keeps people coming back to Netflix. Netflix as an example. Uh-huh. And now that I work with you know, I work a lot these days with pretty large corporations. And when you get really large um, global corporations or hundreds of thousands of employees and you have internal departments like HR, they get pretty divorced from the business. That makes a lot of sense. And so that for me, that combination, that's the real critical way to change things. So since we're talking, wrapping that in corporate culture, corporate culture is unique to every corporation because every corporation serves a different customer. That's quite fascinating. So as the HR department starts to grow uh, on the other side of the river from software development, in in asset management, it's going to be research, portfolios, financial planning, all that stuff becomes completely separate from that. How do you bring it back across the river? How do you get HR to serve the customer by working with the other divisions? Well, you make serving the customer and understanding the business uh, a core part of the knowledge of literally everyone that works in a company. There is nobody in any company that you should hire that doesn't have the capability of understanding the basics of a profit and loss statement. So, for example, I was just talking to somebody yesterday about customer service, and she was new in customer service, and she said, you know, what can I do to really enhance this experience for people? And I said, number one, don't lie and tell them that this is the beginning of their lifelong career at the corporation, because it's not. It's usually a job that people are in for a couple of years before they can't take it anymore. (laughs) Two, teach them how to read a P&L so that they can know that if they have a customer that hangs up and says, wow, that was a great experience. I'm going to tell my friend to use this. That is actually a direct line marketing contribution to the business, mm-hmm. straight to the bottom line, because that's a marketing marketing dollars that you didn't spend because you acquired a new customer for free. It's it's easier to keep customers than it is to get new customers it's, as well. It's, it's hugely fiscally responsible to do so, uh-huh. right? And if I believed as a customer service rep, my job wasn't to listen to cranky people complaining all day, but my job was to create an experience so that somebody would tell somebody else to join for free, right, that I was contributing to the bottom line, then I would learn more about what it is that I do. Secondarily, I would learn a skill that I can take with me for the rest of my career. I could go into the next company and not say, well, how many kinds of craft beer do you have? But instead, do you have a profitable business model? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And and most people don't really. It's crazy to me. I don't think I understood that until I was 15 years into my work life. So when did that that that's really you're going right to my next question. What led to the realization that, hey, culture really matters? You know, 
I don't know that it was birthed that way. It was no grand epiphany. It was a lot of little things. No. The story I told you of uh, when Reed and I worked together in that software company, when we it was a great company and we had a lot of great people and we made a lot of great products, but it was a company like every other company. Mm -hmm. And so when he asked me to join Netflix and I thought it was a dumb idea and I didn't want to do it. And what, what he did that compelled me was he said, let's create the kind of company we want to work for. Like what if we're successful again, but we love it, right? What will we do? And I said, Oh, okay. If we did that, how would you know? And he said, oh, I'd want to walk in the door every day and solve these problems with these people. And then he asked me, how would you know? And I said, wouldn't it be cool if we were a great company to be from? Like A great it, company to be from. Yeah. And it changed everything for me. Like, what if I could, on your resume, it's like, oh, you were at Netflix. Were you there during DVD? Were you there? To, what did you do? Because there would be an assumption that you did something amazing. Right. And so the thing that we did differently there that didn't seem crazy radical at the time and didn't seem like a new wave of inventing culture was we just wrote stuff down. So the famous Netflix culture deck was an internal document for onboarding people. You said something before that cracked me up that I just have to ask you about. When I first heard about from my good buddy, Jeff Weitzman, who whose company got bought by Yahoo and he moved to Silicon Valley, to Palo Alto in the mid-90s and has been happily ensconced in California ever since. We were talking about this, and I'm like, DVDs by mail? Who would ever want? I, You know, there's a blockbuster on the corner. Why do I want to get DVDs by mail when I'm living here in the city? It sounds pretty silly. What was your response when Reed first said to you, Here's what the business model of the company is. I thought it was ridiculous. I only, you know, he was the only, there were three people I knew that had DVD players and they were all geeks like him, right? And I had three kids and a house full of VHS tapes, right? Mm-hmm. It just, there was no way I was going to give up that space on my bookshelf, right? you know, and for those silly little things. And, and I met him one time in the parking lot of an office max early in the morning, he had his kids in a stroller. And uh-huh. I said, um, what are you doing? He goes, taking the kids for a walk. And I said, what kind of father are you going to office max? He said, right. I bought a postage meter, meter. I'm mailing DVDs to myself and they don't break. And that's how he told me the idea about Netflix. Really? So that's how he tested it. He mailed it to himself. Oh, yeah. It was crazy. And so when I think about my career at Netflix, um, I think I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur. Uh And so I was very lucky because I got three separate companies when I was at Netflix. The first one was on the DVD by mail business. Could we come up with a business model that would actually make money before we ran out? Mm -hmm. And that was very touch and go. (laughs) So what was the model? That you would send it to people, they could have one out at a time? Our original model was late fees and due dates. Right. It was just blockbuster And, and if you kept it, you would continue to hold it for as long yeah, as you... Yeah, and then, then we did the subscription model. That made a, um, a little more sense. So that was the second kind of... We really were taking down blockbusters. So that was my second startup. Hold the DVDs for as long as you want, and when you send it back to us, we'll send you the next DVD yeah. in re- your queue. I remember interviewing somebody one time, and she said, Oh, God, you know, my daughter watches The Little Mermaid over and over again and I bet I've had that DVD for six months you probably won't 
want it back. I'm no, like, you just bought it for three times. No, what it I just I like you know. Keep it as long as you want. It's we don't care. We just want your daughter to be really happy. And I'm thinking the same right. thing. I'm like, My, well, you could have bought it seven times it? over. What was it? Twelve dollars a month or fifteen dollars oh, a it month? Was Twenty and then fifteen. Tw- and right. Then, but you know, those are old, old days. That's sure. A long, Netflix is twenty years old, right? That's so, amazing. So that was my second startup was DVD by mail. The third one was figuring out the technology of digital streaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a very technical challenge that most people don't realize back you if know. if only the company had a person in charge of HR with a lot of experience with engineers. Yeah, so I left as the company morphed to be what it is now, which is a global original content company. Uh-huh. That's um, the fourth business effect. Which is the fourth business effect and knowing read they're up to something that's the fifth right. business in the future. I just don't know it now cuz I've been gone for so long. Mm-hmm. So you know, while I love to reminisce about the days at Netflix because they were wonderful, um, what I want to talk about now is about the innovative spirit that we had there. And the the most important part of the culture there was this belief that if you put the right people in the room with a really hard problem that mattered, and you took away all the constraints and gave them focus and a due date. This is one thing that startups don't do very well. Mm-hmm. You know, their end, end game is someday. Right. Right. Instead of like sure. like the end of the year or at the end of the quarter. Some hard or deadline. Some hard deadline. And that's partly because engineers are very schedule driven or very, you know, it's interesting. All the stuff that I talk about, I learned from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, or from product managers, you know, why, like I say to HR people now, I said, look, let's take the annual performance review. What is it? What do you do it? Is it a feedback mechanism? Okay, let's say we do that to give people feedback on their performance. Well, and you step back and said, let's create a system to give people feedback for their performance. Why only once a year? Once a year? Really? I mean, seriously, what else do you do once a year that you're good at? That would be nothing. Right. right. So, I mean, it's just a bad, it's a bad system for doing that. So if you were an innovative engineer, you would say, well, that's dumb. Throw that away. Let's start with the end game and work backwards and test a couple of things so we can figure out right. a system that really does do that. Right. What a cool idea. Right. If you say it's a system to fairly compensate people mm-hmm. and you're in a very dynamic work environment where compensation moves pretty rapidly, constantly, constantly for different positions. Why would you do that once a year by looking at a survey that looked at companies that were similar to you kind of last year? Right. right? I mean, so I. I'm okay if you choose to do what you've always done. So this is sort of my message, my my revolution I want to start right now, which is choose it. So what was the the either the pushback or the feedback from Reed when you start throwing away, hey, these are cherished and long-held corporate philosophies. Oh, no, no, Throw no. Throw it away. No, 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 no. The pushback was completely the opposite. Just do more no, of no, this. No, 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 no. It was Reed. Yeah. He's the innovator. Oh, really? Yeah. No, it was Reed who would say, how come you have to, how come you have to have paid time off? And I, you know, the HR VP, I was a real HR person. Paid time off. So, so for example, we, uh, when we went public, we had to come up with a new scheme for paid time off and, 
Was that a legal requirement or just habit? You know, we had, at the time we were paying people, you accrued a day a month, and uh, it was an honor system, and when you left the company, we trued up. Right. But the auditors didn't like it because we were technically paying everybody 13 months a year. It was all falling to the bottom line. Because you don't true up until okay, you leave the company. Right. The Sox guys didn't like it. Because, I would never have even thought of yeah, that. Yeah, because it wasn't right? like it, what everybody My else 13, was doing. Yeah. And then, um, and I and I didn't want to write down, here's your 10 holidays, right. and here's your 10 vacation days, and here's your six sick days. In my office, we call that big boy rules. Yeah, so hey, you got work to do, and if you need to take time well, off, so, take time so off. So I didn't want to write a policy that said that, and yet tell the engineers, I'm just kidding, I don't really care what you do. Right. Because, because engineers will look at that and go, typical HR. Right. I sexually harass somebody, and you're going to fire me, but the time off policy, you don't really care. Right. So is it a policy or right. it's inconsistent? It's not a policy. So I say that to Reed. I'm like, this is what I think the engineers are going to think. And Reed is an engineer says, oh, yeah. Hey, by <laughs> the way, do you have to have paid time off? And the HR VP in me says, of course you do. Everybody's got paid time off. Well, is and, it a legal requirement? Right. So then the hanging out with Reed forever VP in me says, you mean legally? So I go and Google it and I do some research and I can't find any statute that's requires paid time off for salaried employees in California. So anyway, we get rid of it, right? It, but where where I become the COO is where Reed comes up with these crazy ideas like, well, maybe we don't even have to have it. Maybe we don't even have to, should we even have a travel policy? Should we have expense approvals from finance? And I start thinking, well, if we really have hired adults who are really smart and really capable and really responsible, then do you really need do that? we really need to do that? But I also have to operationally go back and say, well, if there's no one in finance that approves the expenditures, I still need to know what you're spending. Right. How so do you then keep, I got to keep an eye on it. At yeah. The so least. then you embed a finance person in every organization who says, hey, by the way, you budgeted for individual expenditures at. $10,000 a person and your run rate's 11. So how are we going to think about that in terms of the budget? Which is the real question to ask, not that I went to finance and they said no. Mm -hmm. Right? It's so, what are we actually spending what and are what we, are we actually, budgeting and it, for? And it's that, um, it's that product-like look at everything that you do. Uh -huh. Right? So what's the purpose? What's the purpose of the travel policy? Right? Is it to save money? then say, hey, by the way, here's your ex travel expenditure maximum, right? Mm -hmm. Is it to be efficient? Then you have to think about who's traveling for what and why, right? And if you think about that in terms of what's the right thing for the company, see, now I'm teaching people, it's not about you. It's about us. It's about the P&L. It's about the customer. It's about the company. What's the right thing to do in this case? And that adds up to a corporate culture, doesn't it? It does, right. And so we wrote down, as we started to do these things, here's what. So, for example, if you look in the old culture deck, it says there's five words, you know, act in the company's best interest. Right. Now, the whole system around that means you have to hire people who do. Right. You have to have people be responsible when they don't. There have to be consequences. Right. right. Good and bad for when sure. people act the culture. So the question you asked me was, how did I come up with that? I didn't. We did it collaboratively over many, many years. And the thing that was different was we wrote it down.
That That's just fascinating. We have been speaking with Patty McCord. She is the former chief talent officer at Netflix. She is also the author of Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. Uh, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue to discuss all things corporate culture. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure and check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Patty, for doing this. I'm, I'm really enjoying the conversation. And before we get to our standard favorite questions, there's still a bunch of things I have to ask you that I, I didn't get to. Um, first, you were right in the heart of Silicon Valley in the late 80s and throughout the 90s. What was that period of time like? How to be mayhem? It wasn't. I mean, it was just something new and exciting every day. There were, you know, there's a energy in the Silicon Valley that anything's possible. Really? Yeah, that uh, I think partly because of the whole stand, Stanford, you know, young entrepreneur sure. thing. You know, much has been said about the maligned millennials, a term I really hate, um, you know, because when you're in your 20s you were a millennial i was a millennial it was a while back when right? we were millennials we were, were no called, but 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 we were <coughs> i was called a punk not a millennial <laughs> yeah but here's what we had that's the same what do you want when you're 20 something everything when do you want it now right and there's some of that energy that's always been in the silicon valley sure which is it should be better and we should be able to make it better and so let's ju just go do it you know when i consult <coughs> with startups i tell them look here's the three types of employees you want in a very early stage startup you want the smartest people you can hire for whatever you can afford to pay them uh -huh. you want them to work really hard because when you solve early stage problems they're problems of difficulty mm -hmm. and the way you solve them is you just pound at it you know right. not that you know your whiteboards are full of lists of like not that not that not that all you do is screw it up because you're making stuff up sure. right if there was if it was a smart re reasonable idea somebody else would already be doing it so all startup ideas are stupid so when people say <laughs> that's a dumb idea it's like of course it is it's a startup and the third thing you want is you want people to believe right and those beliefs in those early companies are not rational Right. And so it's like, well, I Cause, think because you're going to believe you have to beat the odds. You can believe you're going to do something no one has done before yeah. and that all the stars align and there's a giant cash. Out yeah, of right. And and it's all and everybody's going to be a millionaire on mm -hmm. the day of the IPO. I mean, so all the myths that go with it. But you actually don't want experienced people in those early days very often because they'll say, no, we've tried that. It doesn't work. Now, as soon as you're at the point where you actually have something and you actually have a customer and you might actually have a business and there's actually a light at the end of the tunnel, then almost instantaneously, those are the wrong people. Because now you say, okay, how do we take this to a, a level of scale and complexity? And and the early stage people go, work hard without food or water, maybe beer. Right. <laughs> right? Not sustainable. <laughs> Not, well, and so you have to say, well, or we could 
plan it. Um, So that's where, you know, I try and help people through those step functional changes in their organization. Is Is that why we so often see the founders not succeeding as CEOs? It is why we sometimes see that happen. You know, I've seen it all. Like a lot of the myths that we have, I've seen busted, right? Mm-hmm. Could Can co-founders continue to run a company? That's never going to happen. It's never going to happen forever. Um, I work with Warby Parker. Their co-founders sure. still run the company. They're well, di- Reed Hastings, Google, go down the list of people. Yeah, who- well, they're founders, but, but I mean co-founders, right? Mm-hmm. In my day, there was only going to be one Larry Ellison. There's only one right. Bill Gates. There's only one Reed Hastings. I see you know, there's only one at the top, but we see now... A number of co-founding organizations that exist with co-founders for a long time, uh, like two at the top, uh-huh. for example. And that work, that can work out. Yeah. So I think that what I want to talk about now is the innovative nature of Silicon Valley. We can all pick up in terms of how we operate in business. So when I go consult with or talk to Bank of America or Fidelity or some very large organization, now they want to know, okay, now how do I undo this albatross mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that we've created that's very efficient, it's at huge scale, and has no ability to be nimble, right. and all of these little fintech companies are nibbling at my ankles and they move so much faster faster they're more innovative they're creative and they could address problems you're not even aware of so i have to tell you a story it's an interesting one i'm consulting to one of these large institutions and somebody says well um how do you feel about remote working and i said that's an odd question to ask me in 2018 right Uh, and i said what do you mean by that and he said well um here at our bank in this particular city we still require people to come in at nine and leave at five they have to they have to show up for work and i said do they have to bring their own tools to i said to to him i said do you take away their cell phones and they walk out of the door at five what's a cell phone yeah exactly (laughs) what century and it made me think you know it's one of the answers to your question later it made me think why did we have to use to show up to work? Oh, because our equipment was there, <laughs> right? And and right. the and the thing I hold in my hand now, I used to have to ask a burly guy to help me get out from under my desk, right? right? So you know, and I, I said to him, like, we all work remotely now. I mean, there are issues of supervision and control and compliance. Yeah, well, you know, I'm not. However, a, you could. I'm you not could, a big fan of any of those. But either. but. Even if you're mandated to do that, the technology exists. Whether the person is down the hall or on the other side of the country, you still you could still monitor email with whatever software you need to. You could still make sure they have all the tools that everybody in the room has. The the idea of you have to come into the office at nine and you we prefer you stay at least till five, that seems almost you know, that's I antiquated. I have been in situations uh, in innovative companies in the Silicon Valley where I think it's really important to be at work. Mm-hmm. And here's when I think it's really important to be at work, when you're collaborating and inventing stuff, when Absolutely. you need to walk up to somebody and go, you know, I got this idea, I just need to run it by you. I, it's funny, I I said at Netflix at one point, the only perk I want to have is showers. Right. Because you know how, like you say, um, I had this idea in the shower this morning. I thought, well, if we get stuck in a meeting, it's like, everybody in the shower. Don't come out until you have an idea. right? But, but My I, wife makes fun of me because I will rehearse presentations in the shower. Not just because of the acoustics. 
it's just a great place well, to free, free so, associate. So back to remote, so you know, you so I think um, a lot of planning and execution happens at work. A lot of innovation happens when you're you know, on the beach. Lost in space, yeah. Lost in space or in the shower or whatever. So I don't think that having, I don't think technology tethers us like all the things that you just said. I think it frees us Mm -hmm. to be able to participate in work kind of on our own schedule. And so the idea when you said about command and control and uh, compliance, and so I'm not sure that those things are necessarily part of a healthy work environment at any size at this point. Well, if you're a regulated entity, you have to check those you boxes. You do, but but like you said, you don't have to check those boxes by walking around with a clipboard and <laughs> noting right. that everybody's that, here, no, right? No doubt about so that. So that's my whole point. You know, <clears throat> We should use the tools and the technology we have to innovate the way we work, just like we innovate the products that we use. Mm-hmm. When when you think about when you think about how I'm looking for the exact word. When you think about how popular and attractive urban spaces have remained or become, what you described having all that intellectual capital in one space, having people in the same room collaborating, innovating, inventing, just just brainstorming. That's challenging to do remotely. You need to be face-to-face for that, ideally. I'm not saying you can't do it other ways, but when everybody's in the same room, it's just for three hours. It's, it's true. A different, if it's a different it, experience. It's true, but, you know, I um, I wrote my book collaboratively with a team of people that I put together all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. We've literally never been in the room together, mm-hmm. um, and I, they very much feel like my team. Uh, and I know them really well. And so I think technology changes that a lot. Let's look at the technology of um, Skyping and, you know, remote Share, it, screen, shares screen and sharing. That stuff. I mean, that's changed. So I'm a recruiter. I go back a long, long way, right? And phone screening used to be something that I was really good at because I listen a lot for nuances of voice. But I'm telling you. Screen sharing changes everything. It's seeing a some, face-to-face Seeing meeting. somebody's body yeah. language, having those conversations. You and I are talking about how much more fun this is. Live. Because right. we're in the same room right. together. But the closer you can get to that, the more I think you can still extend those collaborative conversations without mm-hmm. having to physically be there. That, that makes perfect sense. So I have one more Netflix question. You were there for 14 years. What led to the decision to exit was it mutual? Was it your decision? How did it come about? Oh, everybody loves the breakup story, don't yeah. they? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> uh, we'd been together for a really long time, and the company was morphing. And so it, as the company morphed into um, you know, a, uh, original programming, uh, global, it was a good time to leave. And we had just come out of the quickster scenario that that whole disaster of um splitting the company from the dvd by mail business and and so we were both kind of ready to say let's move on let's do something different so you know i was sad that i left because i'd been there for a really long time but i also was like super grateful that i'd been there long enough to see what i had seen and you had a big pile of stock options i I assume pile of stock options and i've been saying forever forever and ever and ever be a great place to be from right and clearly and sitting here in front of you <laughs> that turned out to be really true right that sounds great it's um it's kind of fascinating watching the company grow and they have the ability it seems to be as disruptive as apple or amazon has been 
Uh, stop and think about the current generation of millennials. They could care less about having a cable subscription. Hey, let me let me push back. They okay. have they have already. It's over. Oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I I I'm not in Reed's head anymore. But uh-huh. I'm telling you, world domination is so yesterday. Right. <laughs> well, I'm talking 2020, and you're talking 2010. So it's really just where the it's specific. Just, we've is. been talking about what Netflix is doing, not with the tech t- tactical details, right? But that. If you build a business from the perspective of the customer, don't we all want to be able to watch whatever we want to watch whenever we want to watch? Sure. Personalized to us anywhere in the world. Yeah, of course. I think it's kind of done and done. It's if it's not fully realized, the overall trend certainly. The we're we're not debating if we're debating when. Is it 2015? Is it 2020? See, I'd but it's an assumption. I would argue it's 2018. We're we're close to there. It's not a quite a hundred percent because every time I go, so I'm a fan of the Expanse, and I open fire up my Amazon Fire Stick, and I have to say, was that was that an Amazon Prime? Is that Netflix? Yeah, is that Hulu? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's so many choices. Yeah. You have to you have to, and now Apple is throwing billions of dollars at it. There's going to be a run of. There I, is no like flick on the TV, flick I, the channel. I certainly hear you, and I know, and I know that'll get better because Amazon Prime and Netflix are tech companies at their heart. They all stink and, at organizing the material, and that goes for across well, the board. I don't know. They're all. I'm going to argue with you because I you just can wa- argue. All I you just want. walked out of my hotel room this right. morning, so flip to the channel guide on your hotel room. It's better than. Well, first of all, it's uh, an unfamiliar set of channels. At home, if you still have cable or satellite and you flip to the guide, well, I know exactly where my favorite things are. I know where HBO is. I know where the sci- yeah. Sci-Fi Channel is. I know where BBC America is. Those are my three go-tos. Uh-huh. And there are a bunch of others. Um, but I also know, I don't know where Showtime is, but I assume it's near HBO, so I could go find it. These are really good questions. I'm going to have to call up my geeks and see what's up. So Because <laughs> you know they're working on it. You, you, so when, you know that that's obvious to everybody. When I go to either um, Apple TV or Amazon Prime or even Netflix, Netflix gives me a run of stuff. And it uh, now here's the other issue. And this, I think, is, is my, our problem because mm-hmm. neither you nor I are millennials. Mm-hmm. I suspect, although I've asked millennials and they don't, they don't agree with this. I suspect it's geared towards millennials, and they look at me and say, "Well, who cares what you want to see? We're putting your favorite list here, and then Netflix originals here, and then there's a bunch of other things, and that's the order that these kids want it, and they're our future." I just find there's such a fire hose of amazing stuff, and tra- and not like. My issue isn't how do I find something I want to watch. Right. There's a million things I want to watch. I know what I want to watch. How do I go find that? Yeah. Like Jack Ryan is coming in August. I know that's going to be an interesting show. I don't need to see that every time I log on. Mm-hmm. I've already made a note of it. It's already in my favorites list. In August, I'll see it. But why is that the second tile? Bunky, I'm not there anymore. I don't really know. <laughs> but uh, but no, I, I mean, generally, but, I mean, but that, I will, is, I will, that user interface will, is the next challenge. I will tell you that I am absolutely 150% sure that there are people all over the world working on this no particular doubt. issue. No doubt. And where 
where I saw the trend line, which I think is happening all over technology right now, is that what's been driving most of the solutions to what you're talking about is not our um, our age, whether we're millennials or boomers or what our habits are. Because remember, innovators don't start with what the problem is now. They start with what's the solution going to be for everyone, uh-huh. right? So it has heretofore been personalization. It's That's the magic thing. Can I use the data to give you stuff? Can I intuit what you're going to want? Right. And so now we're in the middle of the, well, is that a good thing or not? <laughs> you know, debate that was certain to happen when big data began to touch every single one of our lives, right? This is the whole Facebook scenario right now and the Russian meddling and all that, you know. So mm-hmm. personalization is great until somebody else gets to decide what's personal to you. So, I mean, I think that's a really interesting technical um, new frontier for us right now. Right. And uh, and since I'm not inside a company that's doing that, I can't tell you what's happening. But I can tell you that knowing I bet these, lots of people knowing these people the way I know them, this is somebody's full time can't go to sleep at night without thinking about what's the solution to this issue. What I miss about the DVD era of Netflix. <laughs> oh, you're getting nostalgic, old school on But me. it's not. It it's, was the ability to go to the website and organize my list, organize my queue. Organize my queue. Right. But now I want to be able to do the same thing for my Netflix screen so that why are you showing me this run of documentaries, none of which I like, why is that even here? Why do I have to scroll through a thousand? Again, of these? Barry, I don't. You're not there. <laughs> Listen, I'm not. I'm not asking you to Fix solve this for problem. Me, Patty. I'm. I'm just. You know Identifying what? Bet, this as a genuine. I bet you issue. somebody's built an app to do it. Um. I bet you they have. Now, do I need an app between me and Netflix on my television? The way you're going to think about how you use all of these devices in the future is going to be a bumpy road Mm -hmm. as we start to solve some of these problems like they always have been. Like, for example, when I was there, okay, Uh when I was there, I was there when the first ability to... Remember when the back and you want to go back in the day, back in the day, streaming wasn't a decade ago. It was (laughs) it was downloading. Right. And it was downloading into a tiny little app on your on your screen on your PC that didn't have very good sound. It was kind of choppy. So I, I was at Netflix from the, we invented the interface on your laptop to porting to every technology known to humankind. I remember interviewing somebody from Motorola at one point who kept messing with this flip phone during the interview. And I said, will you put that thing down? I'm trying to talk to you. And he goes, you know, we're going to be watching video on our phone someday. And I said, Right. <laughs> That's just not going to happen. Right. He's like, yes, it is. It is absolutely going to happen. You're going to do it, and you're going to love it. That's the AT&T que- commercial from like 1980. Exactly. You will right, one day. Right? And, yep. I, and I sounded just like you. That's not the way I want it. I'm never going to man man I just want it usable. That's all I want. <laughs> and so if I don't you, care how it's done. Make it usable. So I, because I lived my whole career there in Silicon Valley. You think it'll happen. I know it will. I know uh, every, you know, to go from not buffering to streaming, like to right. push the button and have it play instantaneously, that inside our company was probably a four-year effort. Wow. I mean, it's amazing. harder than it I looks. remember when the news reports would come out and say, 
50% of internet traffic from 8 till midnight is Netflix. Yeah. Or some insane, I don't remember yeah, what it was, yeah. but it was some crazy. Yeah, I write in the book about how when we realized we were going to be third of the U.S. internet bandwidth, we all just stopped in shock. <laughs> but now, you know, but but the Silicon Valley also has this thing called Moore's Law. Uh-huh. Um, and so... Which enge- we theoretically are coming up on the end of. Yeah, which... Uh, theoretically. and But engineers believe in as a religion, right. which is don't worry. All the bandwidth of that, will show up. It'll show up, right? right? It'll get solved because somebody... And I guess that's... Um, that's a really important part of the message I'm trying to send, which is for every person there's some problem that's really compelling Uh and somewhere there's a company that needs someone to solve that really compelling problem you know and that matching happens over the course of your entire career and that no company continues to give you that compelling problem forever nor do they owe it to you so that dance between learning what you love to do, that you're great at doing, and finding the place that really needs someone who loves to do and are great at doing that, that's the dance of living our, our, um, living our careers for the rest of our lives. You are describing the current season of Silicon Valley. I don't know if you watched the oh, show. Oh, God, yeah, I love it. But It's that whole idea of here's the problem we're trying to solve. Yes. Do you people want to participate? You, you watch the show, you enjoy it. How, I do. How how much really, of a parody is it? It's really close. <laughs> it's really close. I mean, I don't like the stereotypes, but I know every one of those guys. They, they've claimed that there is no one individual, that it's all a composite, so as to not make any one person. By type, there, are, there is always those types. But, but you said something really important. Um, that's what the essence of my book is, too, which is own your career. You know, Don't wait for somebody else to tell you what to do. Don't be a victim. Mm-hmm. Um, be uh, proactive about doing great stuff that's going to satisfy you because otherwise you're going to end up to be a, a victim and not and be disappointed. And on the other side of things, my message to corporations is stop lying to people and telling them you're your family <laughs> right. and that we're going to take care of you and we'll always be fair because right now that's simply not true. It hasn't been for a long time. I was going to say, time. nor has it been Nor has it century. been for a long time. Yeah. So I think that we can be grown-ups and have these kind of conversations for 20 or 30 years, which or 40, however long we're going to work. So let me get to my favorite questions. These are what I ask all of my guests. I'm curious to see how some of your answers go. Uh, Tell us the most important thing that people don't know about your background. I was going to be a teacher. I was passionately going to be a bilingual elementary school teacher. Why did that not happen? You know, it didn't happen because I got, uh, I was a reader in antitrust litigation when I was in college in my student teaching year, and they offered me a job at like three times what a salaried, what a tenured teacher would make, and I took it. And all these years, I felt really guilty because I had given up my dream. Mm-hmm. And I was at this executive offsite one time, all men, right? We're up in Sonoma, and, uh, and we're writing down, you know, what would you tell your 20-year-old self, or, you know, one of those things. And, and I'm writing about how, like, I gave up my dream. And I realized, I looked around me, I was like, wait a minute. I speak fluent engineering. 
they're taller than I expected, and they're all men. Right. <laughs> but I am a bilingual teacher. That's right. <laughs> just, I got, English and engineering. Yeah, I, I ended up doing it anyway. Who knew? T- tell us about some of your early mentors. Who guided your career when you were just getting into HR? Um, I was thinking this morning about a woman named Nancy Hauge, who is the woman I told you the story about at Sun, who hired me. Mm-hmm. And the first one-on-one I had with her, I had my, you know, my pen and my little pad of paper to take notes. And she said, "Now write this down very carefully. I have something very important to tell you." Like poise, she said, "I'm your safety net. Fall." That's very nice. Yeah. Very and, nice. And at the time, I was really worried about you know, doing the right thing and following the right career path. And so that early advice really stuck with me forever. Who who else influenced your approach to HR and the development of culture? Oh, it's totally Reed. Uh, my working with Reed Hastings was the most incredible, innovative part of my whole career. And I, I mean, it's it's because it's not that I rolled off the turnip truck and met Reed and everything was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Our collaboration was really, really fruitful for both of us. Um, there are members of my family who always say, you know, you're awfully lucky you met Reed. And I often say, you know, he's awfully lucky <laughs> he met me. That's right. And if we hadn't both had the lives that we had before we came together, but but at the point where... You know, when you start throwing things away and all bets are off, Mm -hmm. then it gives you the confidence to just keep going. I mean, and in my field, like, what if you try something, it turns out to be the dumbest idea you ever had? Well, no biggie. You just go do what everybody else is doing and call it best practices. Right. (laughs) That that is such a dangerous phrase. Uh, Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, HR-related or not. Well, I just finished Brotopia, Emily Chang, mm-hmm. Bloomberg uh, reporter's book. I love it a lot because she really researched a, a life that I led. I, I can imagine. First of all, she's very, very good at what she does. But she's also this very cute woman in the middle of San Francisco. I can't imagine what sort of nonsense she deals with out there. A lot. I, I would guess enough to write a book about a lot of nonsense so i i love emily's book um i was thinking of the books i loved lean in um mm-hmm. i love i loved gloria steinem's biography right got a trend here mm-hmm. my daughter my 20 something daughter says oh well mom you know you're a 2.0 feminist i'm like seriously okay. i have a number <laughs> like what does that make her she's 3.0 yeah yeah it's a whole different thing Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Understandable. Any other books? Not that I can think of right okay. now. Okay. Uh, tell us what has changed within the industry of both HR, recruiting, and corporate culture. We talked about it a little bit. Uh, I think uh, I think mobile computing, if that's the right way to... I mm-hmm. think it's funny that we call it a phone. Right. Right. When it's a phone and it's a camera and it's more a, power and than it's video and it's yeah, and it, you know, right. it's it's a computer. Uh. It's a it's a search engine. It's, a, you know, all those things. And I think that ability, it's creepy sometimes when you're in rooms of a hundred people. You know, I do a lot of public speaking. Mm-hmm. And when I first started doing it with younger audiences, I thought, Oh, I'm too old. They don't like me. It's not very interesting. They're all looking at their phones. And then then I realized, oh, they tweeted every word I said. (laughs) So that processing is really 
different. And mm-hmm. I wasn't a Twitter user. I I thought it was ridiculous. And now I'm completely a junkie because it's such real time information. Absolutely. So I think Twitter is the new tape. We like to say whatever, or it's the old tape. And because you know, my kids will be like, "Oh, mom, it's so snap, right? Nobody tweets anymore." Right. But um, but they do. But so that I think that technology of having that ability with you at all times, I think that's really significant. I think that'll really change it. It's made the world so much smaller because things happen in parts of the world and suddenly you have a bird's eye view of exactly what's going on which in places. Has been, which has been going, I mean, the idea that we can undo globalization is just like, it's laughable. It's crazy stuff. Yeah. It, it, it's just so silly. So, so mobile computing slash iPhones mm-hmm. are the current major shift. What's the next shift that's going to take place? I think the technology is going to enable us to work the way that is really efficient and effective, which is collaboration across geographies, um, across cultures, across you know thinking about customers as global customers. I think that that will change um, speed, and that. You know, we have this belief, I think, from the 50s that business grows in a linear fashion. You know, all those up and to the right Uh charts that we're so used to seeing. And actually, I see it really evolving. Right. The when I talk to the large financial institutions, for example, that say, "I think we've got it." You know, we've been doing it like this for 300 years, and we're huge, and momentum won't stop us. Well, tell Sears that. Tell Blockbuster. Yeah, even better. That's exactly right. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. You know, in this moment in my life and the whole Me Too movement, um, I think about the times I failed to stand up for what was right Mm -hmm. when I was there. You know, well, maybe he won't do it anymore and we really need him because... He's a sales guy, and we have a hockey stick end of quarter. Right. Right. So let's just, he won't misbehave. And it took me a long time to realize that people who misbehave inappropriately with each other, uh, let's take that particular example, are probably lying about the quarterly sales number, right. too. Or misbehaving with clients. Or mis- Yeah. So I think, you know, if I look back and think about what I would do over again, it would be to own my shrillness uh-huh. sooner. What do you do about somebody who is just spectacular at their job but brings so much baggage? It may not be worth it. You let them work somewhere else. And that's the end of the I story. just told somebody yesterday, I was at a cocktail party last night. We were talking exactly about this. And I said, well, you guys, it was a bunch of recruiters. And I said, you know, you, you can tell them in the interview. Right. I've done it many times. You know, we, we're done with the interview and I say, you know, you're, you're a brilliant guy and you have a lot of skills, that, but you know, you've got an attitude that's really off-putting and I don't think you're going to be successful here. In case anybody hasn't, has not told you this explicitly before, you fall into that category. Right. Right. And we, we're just not doing it. Thanks a lot. And, and what's the reaction to that? Um, a lot of times, like a uh, humble, stunned ex- silence, or they, somebody's people have said that to them in one way or another their whole lives, uh-huh. and it's until somebody says, "Well, we're not tolerating that." Right, we don't need it. It's the same with sexual harassment, right? I, you know, it makes me crazy. I don't want us to be. I don't want this to be an HR issue to fix. 
you know, go tell HR. And this is a hiring issue. Scream no, that out. No, it's the beginning, a living or? everyday issue. So we, it's a culture issue. We need to not be the people that investigate sexual harassment after it happens. Right. So that's your question was, what if I failed at? I failed at standing up going, that's what I'm talking about right now. You just did it. Knock it off. Right. And saying in your 20s, look, when you look at my body instead of my face, when we're having a conversation at work, that's weird. Please stop. And when you're young, you'll go, oh, I didn't realize I was doing that. I'm sorry. Thanks. When you're 45. Yeah. Not acceptable. (laughs) And no one's ever said anything. Then you think it is acceptable. That that's that's pretty astounding. Um, what do you do to keep mentally fit outside of work? What, what, what do you do for fun? I have two grand dogs. Uh, grand dogs? Grand dogs. Your kids' dogs. Mm-hmm, my kids' dogs. Uh-huh. And grand dogs, I think, are close to as good as grandchildren because okay. I get to give them back. Um, we, have a, <laughs> we have a sailboat, and uh, we do a lot of sailing in uh, the, the Monterey Bay, which is where I live. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I've taken up gardening again. I'm going to now do all of those like things that semi-retired people might do if I ever semi-retire. We were just talking about the weather here in New York. Yeah. The nicest thing about spring is all the shoots are coming up. Yeah. All my raised beds, I'm getting ready to replant. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really this is my favorite time of the year or certainly seems that way. It's very zen, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It totally getting your hands in the dirt yeah. is there's just something special. Yeah, maybe about the it. future is the combo of like your hands and one hand in the dirt and the other hand on your cell phone. No, when I'm out there, the, <laughs> Me too. the phone sits in yeah. the shade. If, if I'm lucky, I leave it on the charger inside so I don't have to deal with it. But there are times to be completely and totally. That's right. Um, and now my two favorite questions. If we were talking about millennials, if a millennial or a college graduate came to you and said, I'm interested in a career in HR. What sort of advice would you give them? Well, I'll tell you what general career advice I give people early in their career anyway. I say it's not what you know or who you know. It's who knows what you know. Who knows what you know? Who knows what you know? So the idea of a network, we used to call it networking, right. is now part is breathing. Right, because everybody's socially networked all the time. Right. But I would say early on, start building uh, a group of people around you. Uh, it can be so- on social networking that know what it is you're interested in, that you get to know. Uh, because more importantly, um, it's about owning your own career from the very beginning and not passively joining a company and waiting for them to take care of you. And it's about trying new things and figuring out what it is that you love to do. So I have, in the book, I talk about my algorithm for success, and it's Mm -hmm. a mathematical formula, and it says, is what you love to do that you're extraordinarily good at doing something we need someone to be great at? And so when you're early in your career, you don't know. Right. Right. And so it's really important early to try things that you think you might not like to do to find out if you really don't. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. And my favorite question, what is it that you know today about culture and HR and the like that you wish you knew 20 plus years ago? I wish I had realized my own power. Um, I wish I realized how much it mattered. I mean, I came up with... You know, when I started, well, I started in recruiting, so that was a very um, 
measurable thing to do. I called uh-huh. this many people. I got this many phone screens and this many interviews, and I made this many offers, and I got this many hires. And because I was an internal recruiter, I could see sort of who worked out and who didn't. Like when I put a butt in a seat that I knew wasn't the right butt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I didn't know how important what I did was. I thought it was administrative. And then I went through a part of my career and part of my function where our job was to protect ourselves from those evil employees that might sue us. Right. And I lived through that long enough to realize that when evil employees sue you, it's usually because you did something that made them really mad. Right. <laughs> usually by not telling them the truth. Uh-huh. That made them think it was totally unfair that they were blindsided by something or tortured with their performance improvement plan into into being told that they're incompetent when they're not. Mm-hmm. That's when people sue you. And now, you know, I kind of live in this goofy, I tell HR people all the time, like, you, you know, you think they think you're schizophrenic. Half the time you're there to make them happy with craft beer and the other half you're protecting the company from them suing you. Like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> that that's fascinating. And so I think we're a vital part of every organization and that's putting the right teams together that get amazing stuff done. We have been speaking with Patty McCord, former uh, chief talent officer at Netflix and currently the author of Powerful: Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, where you can see any of the other 200 such conversations that we've had over the past four years. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack team, who helps put together these conversations each week. Uh, Medina Parwana is our audio engineer slash producer. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. And Michael Batnick is my head of research. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.